Honouring Mayor this Friday afternoon. I'd like to welcome back to the studio Karen Cove for this week's Agenda Cafe. Karen, it's great to see you. How are you doing? I'm great, Noreen. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. So what have we got this afternoon? Okay, so it's nice that you said it's great to see me because you can see me, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> so today we're talking about this um, topic, which, which I'll call Invisible Women, um, by which I mean not ghosts, but the way women are treated as they age, you know, especially as they go into their 50s, 60s, 70s. And this is a reality for many women that you go from being, you know, the hot young thing in your 20s, maybe the yummy mummy in your 30s and 40s, and then you fade away and you become invisible. Um, and you read a lot about this. You know, there are a lot of um, uh, articles and, and uh, discussions online of women saying, you know, I don't know what's happened. Nobody just, just nobody sees me anymore. You know, they don't see me as a, as anybody, as a, as a person. You don't, you're not noticed at all. Um, and I've had friends of my own say the same thing that, oh, I, now I walk around, I just feel invisible. So I just wanted to explore this topic and we're going to do it with an incredibly interesting guest who's anything but invisible. We're joined by Brenda Schofield, who is how would you describe her? A long-time Hong Kong resident, a TEDx speaker, former owner of a um, fetish shop called Fetish Fashion, a pretty much all-round amazing older woman. And so, Brenda, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. I don't know how I'm supposed to live up to all that. But <laughs> well, you, you have the lived experience. So let's talk about that. What is your experience of ageing as a woman and your take on the whole idea of you know, women becoming invisible as they age? Well, we start to age from the moment we're conceived, right? And suddenly, do you remember when you were three and you got to be three and a quarter and you thought that was wonderful? Yeah, aging was fine, but we don't call it aging then. Yeah, you're just, you know, growing up, which is growing great. Up. And then, then you get into your 20s and 30s and, and it's great. But at some point, this word is applied to you if you have in some way changed. And often I think, you know, it's to do with... Maybe not looking so attractive as you used to. Now, attractive to whom? Right. Yeah? Are we invisible to both men and women? Um, I, I question the invisibility. I know I've said sometimes that I did get to a stage where I felt invisible. But then I actually looked at what are people really seeing about me? What stage was that? You mentioned you hit a stage. When, when was that for you? Okay, I think it was 70 yeah, 60 was great. <laughs> 50 was wonderful. But, uh, um, yeah, I think 70 because um, I'll tell the story of when I was at a, I was going through immigration in Tokyo with my husband, who is a little younger than me, six years, okay. And the guy on the immigration desk um, dealt with my husband first and then turned to him and said, may I have your mother's passport? Oh, no. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> And I thought, oh, my God, I, I said to this, I said, let me give you a tip. Never, ever say that to a woman ever again in your life. He was very sweet. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, it's not a good thing to say. But, you know, you walk away from it. And my husband said, well, what's the big deal? I thought, what's the big deal? Do I look like your mother? You know, I have white hair and I accept that white hair in Asian society tends to denote that you're really, really old. But that was a turning point for me. I said, oh, I'm old. Do you think that it goes with assumptions that, uh, in a way, he didn't even really look at you. He just looked at the colour of your hair and made a decision? Probably. Yes. And I'm little. 
as well. I'm a little old lady and my husband is a big six foot four man. And I think he just thought that's what it was. Yes, you're right. I think it was the white hair. I like the white hair. It was a really big decision. No, it was, the, it was a decision that was good for me to not colour my hair. Right. To let it come out. Do you remember when we, first, yeah, yes. when, when, when we first started the Agenda Cafe three years ago, one of the very first shows we did was about um, grey gray hair. hair, going grey, and how it was so hard for women to go grey because there is just so much association that goes with it. Um, and it's a very hard thing to actually embrace. You know, it's something that people do kind of reluctantly. A guest sort of said, you know, the hair looks old, but the face still looks young, and she couldn't quite make that connection between the face and the hair, and and she didn't want to stop yeah. dyeing her hair. Yeah. At what point did you stop dyeing your hair? I never dyed it. You never dyed it? Well, okay, I used to have little dark bits put in to highlight the white. Yes. Mm. That I did. For a while, what do they call low lights? Low yeah. lights. So that the I started with a big streak in the front, and luckily, I have to be honest, my hair turned a beautiful pure white, right? Oh, so lucky. it looked good. Yeah, yeah I'm I've lucky. I've got this sort of halo of grey just in the front bit, <laughs> right? Yeah, yes. in between. Yes, I have the same thing. It's like it comes around my face and it comes down the side, and and when it first started, it was at the back, and because I couldn't see it, I didn't care. <laughs> but now it's like, oh, I can see it. I don't like it. Yeah. So, you know, it's yeah. it's not easy to accept. Going back to what happened in Tokyo, you felt instantly bad. How long did that feeling continue for? Most of the holiday, because my husband couldn't possibly understand why I was upset. So we started having arguments about why I was upset. <laughs> no, we had a good holiday, but didn't get it. Wouldn't so, get it now. What really? was his argument? What was his argument of not seeing Why are you it? making a big fuss about nothing? No, I'm not. I've just been called your mother, which yeah. I'm yes, really exactly. not. Yeah, yeah, yes. no, no, didn't get it. Men. Did well, not you know, it. I think that speaks to a double standard um, because when you think about the language we use to describe older women, it's, you know, and it's been like old lady, granny, yeah. crone, hag, etc. Yes. Whereas older men are seen as distinguished, silver foxes, Ooh, yes. senior, uh, executive, so there's a big problem there. Spinster in... versus bachelor. Right, exactly. Yeah. 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 There's a big problem in even the way we, we talk about um, men and women as they get older. So, I, I, mean, I mean, that's something that we should, we should be addressing as well. And uh, I think a lot of guys, you know, when you see a guy who has dyed his hair and it's so obvious, you think, oh, no, stop, 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 stop. You know, let your real hair show because generally... I, th I find grey hair on men extremely attractive. Silver th fox. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I yeah. think that's another one. What, what <coughs> right, women, fox. Yeah, women don't get we, called silver. Silver foxies or <laughs> silver <laughs> foxettes. No, they don't. We, I mean, we get called cougars, yeah. which is not complimentary. Right? It's not. No, it's not. So, you know, there's, there's definitely, I, and I don't know why that language persists. Why hasn't that changed if we're so liberal and a lot more advanced now? I don't know. I think this, this idea of um, yeah, women who are attractive to men despite being older, th this, this insult in that somehow because, you know, I think you are eternally sexual to yourself, always to yourself. Um, and, you know, whether other people think it or not yeah. doesn't matter. But we are sexual beings, I think, from virtually the moment we're born to the moment we die. What we do with it is another matter. Mm. But... I don't know, we're always being judged on it and 
you know, when people say, oh, you look, gosh, you look good for your age. You say, well, thank you. So do you. You That's a good good line. I'm going to use that to some young people. What is it it matter? That's so good. Going back to something you said just now, Brenda, you said, you know, you felt great at 50s and 60s. Funnily enough, you didn't mention 20s, 30s or 40s. Why is that? What was it became... What was it that you became more confident, maybe? And some people do. Oh, some, some women and men as well, you know, they sort of age better and, and they become more confident um, in their 50s. I think I came into my own in my 50s. 40s was good. Yes. I mean, I was always busy. I mean, I, you know, I was a, a young teacher and you, you don't think about yourself very much. You get on with what you're doing. I did a lot of singing and crazy stuff in the theatre and things. And... Then you get to be a mum right, and a teacher and a photographer and whatever else you're doing at the time. And then they go. And then you get on with doing other stuff. But something, yeah, I think 40s were good for me. And in fact, my daughter, who is in her 40s now, said I always knew I would come into my own in my 40s. And she has. Maybe it's a trait in our family. And I don't think being, you know, 20s are Big mess up, really, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. You really don't you know, know who you are doing, or what you're doing. And, yeah. You know, and then you get married and you find out that's not working and you, <laughs> you're going to something else and thanks. <laughs> it can work for a lot of people. What about you, Karen? Do you feel like that as well? You know, you're yeah. more confident. You're just more sure of who you are, what you like, what you don't like. I mean, and- obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty, and And who wouldn't want to be, you know, 25 with everything you know as a 50-year-old? <laughs> be wonderful but um yeah I think you when I look back I I feel like in my 20s I did a lot of great things but there's so much more I could have done I wish I had the wisdom of time goes fast I wish I'd learned this and I wish I'd learned that and I wish I'd done this when I was in my 20s and just you know physically more uh, energetic and and more able and then I feel like my 30s was totally consumed with having children and they're just a total you know, energy, time, life suck for 10 years. Oh, so thanks, I call thanks. that, I always tell my girlfriends, you know, oh, this this will be your lost decade yeah. where you lose yourself in your children, mostly. Um, not because you, it just happens. It's not, and you don't it resent to it. to some people. I mean, I have a lot of friends who, who are yummy mummies and I look at them, I think, how do you do You're it? You're a yummy you know? mummy. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes, yummy but, in a different way. <laughs> but, but it's so hard baby. to be... I think it's hard to be a fully committed mother and be good at that and be good at other things as well, or as good as you want to be. And invisibility doesn't have to happen to women in their 50s, 60s and 70s. It can happen to women in their 30s as well. You know, I, I probably feel a little bit more invisible than I did before because, as you said, the lost decade, of, mm. you know, do you lose yourself to your children you, a little bit? I mean, it's quite funny when I look at the clothes I wore in my 30s, I'm like, oh, my God, they were so frumpy. <laughs> I was focused on not like I couldn't wear any silk because there was just milk stains everywhere and you were running around literally running around all the time with toddlers so you didn't wear any high heels um, and track suits are my best friends now and I'm so glad I work on the radio you know, I'm in my hoodie I worked in TV so I had this this TV outfits and I go home like oh take it all off you know just just get into the kind of real mode so I I mean it is true and but people don't tell you this that children take so much out of you when they're young and they they take you away from often from things you love like I don't think I read a book for ten years I read 
a few chapters of a few books, but I just couldn't mentally focus enough to really read a book that was not, you know, a picture book about Thomas the Tank Engine yeah. or something. So, so, and when they grow up and then they don't need you so much, it's like, oh, okay, now I can do these things that I used to like, if you still like them, if you, if you really know who you are anymore. I have a story about my 30s, later 30s. Um, I, I'd gone through a divorce. My kids were very young. And getting divorced in Hong Kong with two kids is really, really tough. Very little money. And um, I started doing other things besides teaching. Okay, So I would sing cabaret, um, voiceovers and stuff. Anyway, and I would sometimes practice at home, rehearse at home. My kids would say, Mum, stop singing. And I said, listen, this voice buys your shoes. <laughs> and it was, but it was a really extraordinary time, actually, because, you know, you, you know it's a really difficult time financially and you've got to be careful. You've got to make clothes. And I, then I started doing photography as well. All these little things to try and make the rent. Yeah. But it was an amazing time. But my children now, who are now in their 40s, Remember everything with great delight. That was the extraordinary thing. I said, don't you remember, you know, we, there was so little money and I had to be good. Your trick, the, the great trip for them was to go to the Oxfam store oh. because there wasn't much money, but they might have $3 or something to go and spend. And they were so excited. Always, right. always an adventure. You'll always Isn't find it? something for a good price. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it so is. It's interesting because you you remember that as such a difficult time, yeah. and they remember it as so much fun, painting which, their bedroom, yeah, right. and sleeping in bunk beds. And yeah. <laughs> but which is credit to you for for making oh. that environment for them and making them feel safe and feeling like they had a great childhood, exactly. and yeah. them not knowing how difficult it was. <laughs> but you do what you have to. Yeah, all, at any age, don't you? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you think, Brenda, that um, this whole you know idea of how women are treated as they age? First of all, do you think men are treated differently or better? No, differently. Yes, they're like the tummy doesn't matter. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Dad bod is seen as right. something funny and you know great. Uh, Nobody talks about mum bod. Yeah. yeah, yeah and do true. the men really care? Maybe they don't care. They've got a tummy. Men say they do. I mean, they say they have their so own... a lot of them around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> their own body insecurities. But they seem... They don't seem to be as obsessed or... Or maybe they are, but they just cover it up and say, I don't care. But deep down, of course they care. Who doesn't want to have a flat stomach? Who doesn't want to look good? Um... As, as they age, but they're saying, I don't really care. That, that's just the way it is. But I think deep down, the men do care. They, I think they do too. But yeah. maybe they feel like, well, okay, if they're married, like, I don't need to try anymore. Or, you know, this is something I'll do later when I have time because I'm busy working and building my career. Yeah. Not just body, but wrinkles as well. Like women feel the need to nip and tuck or maybe do Botox or maybe do other things. Men... Forget about it. Yeah. Or maybe some men, sorry. I don't want to exclude some of the men who, who do make care. that effort. Yes. yes. <laughs> I did. I had a facelift. Oh, did you? At, oh, I was trying to remember how long ago, 20 years ago maybe. And what, what was the tipping point for you to decide to do that? Okay, I had inherited my family's enormous jowls. You know, the sort of lines that look you like, you look like a puppet. And people kept saying, oh, Brenda, you look so tired. Are you okay? And after a while, I thought, Oh, stuff it. Maybe I'll do this. And I did a lot of, you know, looking around at people. I went to London in the end. Um, I don't think it was as, as easy 
an operation as it might be these days. And I did it. And um, he said to me, if you're coming to be changed, forget it. What will happen is that after a while, after, say, two weeks, people will say, oh, if you've been on holiday, you look good. And that's what really happened. Really? And I don't regret it. And I think... I have a, a right to do that, and so I, I did. Good I had a facelift, yeah, and uh, yeah. now, of course, the jowls are coming back a bit, but uh, they're going to stay. <laughs> 73, it's okay. And so when you did that, were you married at the time? Yes. And oh, was did I? you... Was I? Uh, yeah, I think I was. Okay. Did, hmm. your, did your husband say anything before? Or, or oh, no, he thought it was a great idea. Okay. So he was supportive. Yeah. 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 And it's <laughs> a bit tough, but, you know, afterwards, it was really okay and did people then say to you have you been on holiday yeah they they couldn't figure out that's the what that's it the best was. kind of way you know no no wrinkles up on my forehead and wow that's a job well done because yeah. if they say oh you look really different have you done this then no, that's, no, that's no. too obvious but i wouldn't let them touch my eyes because i'm too vain oh. <laughs> about my eyes no way Interesting, interesting. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is that you you believe, and I also believe that, you know, we are sexual beings from the day we're born until mm -hmm. the day we die. But um, do you think that women seem to be sexually relegated to the no-go zone after a certain age in in the eye of, you know, the media or the, or the oh, public? Yes. Oh, what, yes. Where do you, how do you see that happening? Um, isn't, wasn't there an actress recently who talked about the, what she wanted to see more sex scenes with over 50s? I forget her name. But anyway, oh, yeah. yeah, I just think, yeah, after a while, unless you look sexual or fresh or young, then people don't think about what's going on inside you. Mm. I don't think there's really an age to it, but people presume that somehow... It's diminishing, and of course it diminishes. Everything diminishes when you get older. And yes, of course, you don't feel as sexual as often when you get older. But I am sure that, you know, an 80-year-old or a 90-year-old can still feel stirrings when she sees either a lady, if it's a lady, her choice, or a gentleman that she thinks is really, really attractive. I don't think it goes, but I'll let you know, because I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I mean, I think it is getting a little bit better these days because you have um, a lot of older women who are um, prominent, you know, and, and powerful in high-profile positions. You have women like Jennifer Lopez, you know, yes. 50, doing the halftime Super Bowl show, pole dancing. Yeah. So I think the, the age, upper age limit is getting extended, but there's still definitely an assumption that, you know, after a certain age, you're just not sexy anymore. Yeah. And sometimes people need help to be a bit sexy. Let's take a quick break and we'll return to uh, more chat with Brenda this afternoon. And perhaps we can also talk about her fetish shop after the news. Back, you're listening to the Agenda Cafe this afternoon with me, Karen Ko and Noreen Mia. And today we're talking about a whole range of things from aging women to fetishes. And we're joined by Brenda Schofield, who is a longtime Hong Kong resident, TEDx speaker, um, owner of um, the former fetish shop called Fetish Fashion. And uh, Brenda, so we talked a lot about um, aging and being a woman aging in the first half. 
one of the things you did very recently was you uh, gave a TEDx talk at TEDx Teen How Women in November. Right. And you really kind of told us your whole life story. It was very candid, very open. Um, it's on the internet, by the way, yeah. for those of you who missed it. It's on YouTube. Right? I watched it. Yep. It's very, very good. <laughs> it's amazing. You it's not f- my whole life story. There's an awful lot more. Oh, than okay. <laughs> Maybe for the next TEDx talk. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you were very candid. One of the things I remember from that um, was – when you talked about when you were young, you realised you were kinky. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about that? Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I was about, I suppose about seven, and I was playing with my friends in, should I tell the story? Yes. Um, in there, in, in, up in the attic. And we played our games up in the attic because we could then hear her mum trotting up the stairs and stop whatever we were doing. And we were all girls together, but it was still quite, um, yeah, a little, little bit sexy, right? And we played a game called Queen. And the Queen was appointed and she could tell anybody else to do anything. Sometimes it involved taking clothes off and stuff. And the, th- the interesting thing was I discovered I never wanted to be Queen. The, I, I liked a bit about being told you're a, you're a horse trot round there here. And you, you leave that aside for a while. Then later on, I, as I was growing up, I had my ears pierced. And I can remember after all the nasty pain and things have gone, when I put the earrings in, it really turned me on. And I said to my friends, oh, it's a real turn on when you, when you put the earrings in. And my friends said, what? <laughs> I thought, uh-oh, not everybody responds the way I do to this. And so you gradually learn more and more. And I read a book, this is way before internet really, called The Story of O by Pauline Rege. And it was about a submissive. And I found it somewhere. And I read it and I thought, oh, my God, I think these things, someone else thinks like this. And that's really how I discovered it and found a name for it before it could be named you know, in books or internet. Mm. I was reading that book that really did it. But I knew before, oh, you just stuff had those I like feelings. that yeah, other, other girls don't, not many anyway, think right. about it. You're born with it, I'm sure. I'm sure it's like a little seed. And I believe the seed is born in you. If the seed gets the sunshine and the moisture, it will grow. Sometimes it stays dormant your whole life. But I absolutely believe you're born in this way. Mm. Like and, gay, right? And some people suppress it. And some Ooh, people, yes, of yes, course. Yes, and some people who, like you said, with the sunshine, with the moisture, it, you know, it blossoms. You find the right people, the right honesty, the, the, the right safe. knowledge. Yeah. And yeah, mm. yeah. And were you able back then when you were young to talk to anybody about it, explore it at all? No. Explore? No. No. <laughs> well, not in ways I want to talk about on the radio. <laughs> but, um, you know, when you're little, you learn all sorts of things about yourself mm. and your body. But I didn't quite know what What to it do was. with it. And, yeah, I didn't yeah. know. But we were young and innocent. Did you know already it was a bit of a taboo? Or did you know that you weren't supposed to really share this? Well, or I, try and gauge if they also felt the same way? No, I don't think you talk to your little girlfriend so much about that. And it wasn't, certainly wasn't a subject that was ever discussed in my family. Except that my dad told me when I was 13, daughter... He often forgot my name. I was an only child, but he was an artist. Okay, it didn't matter. He loved me. <laughs> and he said, daughter, sex is the strongest force in the world and never forget it. That was mm. it. And I, uh, 
afterwards I thought, well, I don't know, love's right up there. <laughs> but, you know. Um, wow, and your dad my shared My dad it. told me that. Wow. Yeah, wasn't that interesting? We never discussed sex afterwards. But he was an artist and a musician and a bit of a wild man. And very wise, uh, yeah. And wise, I think, yeah. But it was amazing at <laughs> 13 to be told. Like, okay, Dad, thanks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bear that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else really, you want to share with me? <laughs> my mum hardly talked, talked about it, except uh, to say, what do you think? Oh, no, I better not tell that story. <laughs> Stop that story. <laughs> so then, okay, fast forward to Hong Kong. Yeah. I know you've talked about this a lot. You're probably tired of talking about it, but can you tell us about the Fetish Fashion Days? How did you come to start and run that business? How did it start? Okay. Um, my um, husband obviously w was into the scene as well. And unbeknownst to me, he actually bought a little business which was called Fetish Fashion with the aim of eventually uh, turning it into a, a, a proper shop and some what we would call playrooms, areas where you can enjoy BDSM. So we found a premises, um, aptly named the Cockloft, actually, <laughs> in, 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 no, in Bifargai. And it, um, it went up some stairs and we had a lovely shop. And then we had two playrooms, one on that level and one down in the basement, which was we turned into a sort of um, slate dungeon. It's quite exciting because, you know, you want to make different, different atmospheres in these places. So that's how we started it. And um, I was still teaching at the time. So I wasn't involved in the business anyway until I stopped teaching. And then I took over with a, a manager and was there most of the time and discovered the most amazing group of people in Hong Kong who were just yearning to have somewhere Safe. to go, somewhere mm -hmm. to talk, somewhere to say, I don't know what I'm feeling, but there's something I need to know about. So mm. I, you know, I started counselling there as well. And right. how was that sort of, was that word of mouth? Um, or was it via the internet or you couldn't really advertise? No internet then. This is ages yes. ago. I think, I'm hopeless at dates. I don't 90s? Know. Oh, yes. This is the, this is the 80? Was so it 20 the 80s? years ago we had the trial. We've been running for maybe eight, ten years yeah. now. I'm very yeah. bad with numbers. Um, what was your question? Yeah, so, how, <laughs> so how did people hear about it? Word of oh. mouth or... Well, yeah, um, you couldn't really advertise it, really. You certainly could. Oh, okay. You're kidding. That was that was my point. I think that there is nothing to be ashamed of in this particular. But did newspapers would? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. I, I did television programs. I did I, radio programs. That's brilliant. That's even more sort of out there than yeah, now. Than today. That, I was today. absolutely determined to do it. Good for to you. say this is what we do. This is why we do it. We don't ask you to join us. We ask you to understand us. Mm. And that's, I was still an educator, I think. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, we, and then often you get calls. I had one call one day, and my manager said, Oh, uh, the BBC want to talk to you. I thought, Oh, yeah, right. You know, anyway, I called this guy. Yes, it really is the BBC from London. And they're coming, they want to send a television crew out to make a program about Brits abroad. They said, We've heard about your shop. And they, they came out, and we spent two weeks filming everything about the shop and why I had it. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. It was the most beautifully made program. I learned a lot about television production. And, and then someone else came out and we did another, another one there. Spanish TV came out. And, <laughs> oh, oh, loads wow. of people were coming to the shop. You were too young, Noreen. <laughs> <laughs> you were only a baby then. <laughs> yeah, so we had a lot of publicity and it was absolutely deliberate on my part. Mm. And 
in terms of the your, I mean, it's interesting. You just said you started counselling there. So yeah. in a way, you were you were providing a form of sex education, right? Often, yes. When and pe- therapy, yeah. yeah, people would come and they say, I I don't know what it is about this that I'm interested in. You know, can I talk to you? And then there are ways to help someone, you know, understand what they're feeling, what it is they want to explore what would be safe ways to explore it. So, yeah, I started, we had a little room there, which is kind of like a waiting room, but I used it like a, a little counselling room. But then thereafter, I, I trained yeah. as a counsellor. Mm. Yeah. And who were these people? You name it, what would you like? <laughs> Government officials? Yeah. <laughs> um, we just know, we, regular We people. had lawyers, we had, uh, we had a lovely baker who used to bring lots of, of lovely cakes to our parties. Mm-hmm. You name wow. it. And we had it because... People from all walks of life who... Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you know people into this. You just don't know those people are into it. Everyone mm. knows, It's like gays, right? Yeah, right? Everyone knows people who are gay. Yeah. yeah. So tell us then what happened to it? What, what led to the raid? I mean, it seems like a, a regular shop that... Yeah, yeah, it was a regular shop and with, with the dungeons, we were very, very careful legally. We took a lot of legal advice because... Prostitution is is not illegal in Hong Kong. Um, one woman, one room is legal. Now mm. we thought, okay, they may think this is prostitution. It is not because we didn't we didn't have, shall we say, active sex on mm-hmm. the premises. Um, but we recognise that the police may not understand, so we kept ourselves as clear as we possibly could. But um, they watched me, I found out, for a whole year and they showed me a dossier when I was arrested. Really? Which had photographs of me going in and out. They tried to interview people about me. Because the story I have now is that the vice numbers in Central Police Station were down. So they, they didn't needed, have enough arrest. They were they looking for stuff somebody. and they thought, mm. she's got to be doing something strange in there. So they raided, but they raided after we had given 100 Play parties with wow. no trouble. In they come, 24 policemen. Tell us that story. Um, I, uh, people can also go back to your TED Talk, but it was an interesting story that, that you shared, that they came in and you had three rooms and they separated everybody. Right, yeah. So they separated the ladies into one room, the gentlemen into another, and then uh, in the third room they had my husband and myself and my manager and uh, but there was one gentleman who was cross-dressed very successfully and he got directed into the ladies room and he was delighted to be able to say that i'm a man <laughs> success success at last you know? yeah so but it was a frightening 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 experience mm, i you know. can't imagine because yeah. there's a le- last thing you would expect from you know while you're in the middle of a of a party yeah, to, to yeah. have all these police show I mean, up. No one's smoking cigarettes, for goodness sake. Right. We d- allowed very little alcohol because yeah. alcohol and BDSM don't mix. And you know, there was no sex there. And you think, so what are we doing wrong? So in the end, were you charged? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They Actually, there were two main charges, but within those, it was a total of 25 charges. Mm. And one of them was a 250-year-old law, which was to do with bear baiting and cock fighting would you believe and it was keeping a disorderly house and my daughter phoned me because i you don't understand how quickly news gets across the world you know she was in australia and she phones me up and says mum 
what have you been doing? And I said, oh, they're going to charge us with um, keeping a disorderly house. And she said, have you been dropping your tea towels again? (laughs) (laughs) They were great. They were great. My daughters were wonderful. In the end, what happened? Not guilty to every Mm. single charge. Because they really just couldn't prove anything. Because we've done, you had not done anything wrong. But it was, um, how long now? Almost a month's trial. That's a long time to be in court. You must be exhausted from mm. that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and giving, giving evidence is quite scary, but you stay very calm. And, and it was just wonderful at the end when the magistrate said, absolutely, <laughs> there's nothing going on. No one got hurt. Right. You know. Nobody complained who had gone to any of the parties. But exactly, right? yeah. exactly. No, certainly not, except there weren't enough parties. <laughs> <laughs> and now there we are no more. more. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's very interesting because what happened after your case is that that whole fetish scene went underground um, because no, people don't want to take the risk people of doing it again. Yeah. They were frightened. We, we kept the shop open and, and the playrooms for quite a long time, but what eventually closed us down was our landlord saying, look, I'm awfully sorry, it's not me, it's my brothers, um, but we're going to have to triple your rent because, you know, you're a liability. We couldn't afford it anymore. Mm. You know, we never made money on it, absolutely not. Yeah. But three times the rent, and we just had to close. And, yeah. um, you know, yes, and it did. Not exactly go underground, but the places where people are practising, shall we say, are not open to the public. Right. You, you have to be where they invited are. or you have to be part mm. of a group. To your yeah. knowledge, there are still a lot of these underground parties, so to speak. Yes. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't stop. You no. don't stop wanting to eat. You know, it's, it's something in you that you really need. Yeah. Do you think that um, Hong Kong as a society is, is any more accepting of um, fetish and BDSM today than it, than it would have been back then? Or has nothing changed in these almost 30 years? I don't know how you judge it. I don't, because people are still pretty ignorant about it. And I'm still, you know, people still say, you run a sex shop. And I say, no, I didn't run a sex shop. There really is, I don't think there's so much more understanding. I really don't. Especially since change of power in Hong Kong. Yeah, Mm. people are very careful. But of course, it's still going on. You just don't know about it, which is such a pity. Because I think being out in the open saying, here we are, Come and ask us questions, see what you think. Yeah, is a lot healthier than, than having to be underground all the time. Yes. Yeah. And now, okay, here you are, you're in your 70s, you've, and you're now doing a full-time counselling? Well, no, not or... really. Um, I'm, I'm the chairman of um, uh, an NGO dealing with suicide prevention. So in a way, I suppose, one's always using the counselling, although we're not actually allowed to counsel. Because I made a decision after I I, um, actually became a counsellor. I I did a little. And I thought, you know, I don't really want to charge for this. At that point, I didn't need to. And then when I'd fallen into my pit in my 70s, I thought, what can I do? This is crazy. And I thought, you silly woman, go back to what you used to do. And that was suicide prevention in UK and in the early days in the 70s in, in Hong Kong. And so I went back and retrained because you had to train again and, um, and stayed with the organisation. Good and for you. So it's, you're still, it's all about being there when someone needs to talk. And the guy who started our organisation said, you've got one job, 
and that is to pour love down a phone. And you often have to do it with silence. You've got to learn to listen. To listen. And we're not comfortable these days with silence in conversations. Look at us. If we suddenly stop talking, everyone who's listening would think, oh, something's what's wrong. wrong. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're used to always thinking of the uncomfortable silence, but sometimes silence can communicate a lot more. Who was that who said that? Peter Brooks. Oh, that, really? Yeah, theatre director. <gasps> you know Peter Brooks? Yes. Oh, <laughs> I was a drama teacher, so I'm oh. really into Peter Brooks. Oh, um, I was a drama student. <clears throat> oh, great. <laughs> But, I mean, I think that that's wonderful. Do you feel like you've sort of reinvented yourself over the decades? No. No? No, I don't think so. Or do you I think just, you're your true self um, throughout? I think I've always... I don't know how you can be other than who you are. Um, no, you're authentic, Brenda. Mm. There are some people who go through lives living their lives under a mask and not being their true self and and it's so sad it's so hard to imagine that because I, I i can tell from our discussion that you've not lived your life like this but there are unfortunately people who sadly have had to keep themselves away we've, we've spoken to a few guests on the yeah. agenda cafe you'd be surprised be who lived up until hmm. they were 50 oh, no. and yeah. then they came out yeah, but, yeah. Well, I'm, i've met many people within the fetish scene of course they would be terrified to be found out Really, and the one good thing about the arrest is that the police never reveal the names of the guests they arrested. Mm. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, that was really good. Oh yeah, because they happened been... to the guests. Did they have to testify? Did some um, of them have to? No, um, actually, some did okay. testify for it. Didn't have to, but they were released on bail and not charged. They just thought they'd go after us because oh. <laughs> we. <laughs> we were the leaders. And did those guests stay in touch with you over the years? Oh yeah, a lot of them have. Yeah. It's, um, you know, you, you talked about um, having to pretend and having to wear masks. And it's very sad because that is so innovating. You know, your energy goes into that. But I know a lot of people really have to, especially in this town, city. Yeah. Yeah. It's so sad. Yeah. yeah. Really. But, you know, you think once you're out, you're out. You yeah. can say what you like about me. And boy, they have. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> Sticks and stones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have, but you obviously you have a thick skin because you know you've no. been able you've been able to come through it, and now you've been able to talk about it and and tell your story, mm. which I think is a wonderful thing because when someone comes out and tells their story, it sort of lets people feel like, well, maybe I can do the same thing, or uh, even if I don't need to tell it publicly, I can at least be myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're playing a leadership role by doing this. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the ringleader. The ringleader. Yeah. Meanwhile, thank you so much uh, for your time today, Brenda. You've been an excellent guest. Oh, we are welcome. so grateful for your sharing. Yeah. And I hope you know our listeners can hear your story. And check out your TEDx talk. Uh, go to the TEDx uh, website and you can find uh, Brenda Schofield's uh, uh, chat there on YouTube as well. Meanwhile, thank you very much for your time. As Thanks, well. Noreen. Thanks again, Brenda. Thank you. You're most welcome.